Thanks, Google. You made me change the exit script. Thanks. <laughs> I I mean, there was there was some grammatical and just ease of flow of the exit script. Ease of needed, talk. Yeah, that needed some tweaking. Making anyway. the talk bits speak easier. Yes, very much. Speak easier. With more easier. legal alcohol. Did it involve more moonshine? Yep. <laughs> yeah, we got we to make it speak easier, if you know what I mean. Um, well, if you don't watch yourself, we'll make you speak a little easier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, get some of that fruit serum. Uh, but yeah, no, I where were you? It has been Podcast killed for a killed. while, apparently. Yeah, I, for, I, I forgot about the announcement. Like, I knew about it at one point, but now it is officially killed. Like, it was on the chopping block for a while, and now it's Which, gonzo. What's new with the with Google? Google's like, I mean, oh, people are doing this on the internet. Let's have a service for it. Okay, nobody liked what we did. Alternatively, let's buy out another business and then not do it in a way that people liked it, and then it dies, and we yeah. kill it. <clears throat> so, not like that was any major part of our podcast to begin with. No, from what I understand, on, uh, it's more spoofy than anything. Yeah, so... Maybe the occasional stitcher here and there. Yeah, maybe occasional, very I, occasional. I think I looked at the stitcher analytics once, and this was probably like a couple of years ago. The fact that I can say that about <laughs> it's remarkable we can say that about it. Yeah. yeah, I looked. It wasn't too long after we started, really, but uh-huh. it was like one person had listened to some part of an episode. Sure. Yeah. So uh, that probably speaks more to the user base of Stitcher than our podcast. If I don't say yeah, so myself. Like, <laughs> These days, Stitcher is no longer like the place for podcasts because what, when would you know, it Spotify been? and Apple picked up. Well, mostly that Spotify picked up RSS. Yep, because like Back iTunes, day, iTunes had, yeah. had podcasts since the dawn of podcasts. You know, the iPod broadcast, as it were. Um, but yeah, st- I think Spotify being that everybody was using it for music anyway, it just makes that much sense to have the same platform be for mm-hmm. podcasts mm-hmm. too. So it's kind of run away with just the... a lot of user base already for other things. So why not yep. diversify, mm-hmm. broaden sort of a thing? Yeah. Why not kill the two birds with one stone? Um, and one of those birds was Google Podcasts, but by you may or may not be missed depending. Yeah. Well, Google just like there's there's been so many things they've tried and then they just sort of drop it like google plus yeah as like a facebook competitor nobody really picked that up um what else was there google hangouts i think is gone which was just the chat version of gmail it was the skype of google yeah although does google still do video call at all or i think it's um, they have duo on Duo, yeah. So they just migrated it over. But I don't even know what Duo is. So there you go. Yeah. It's like the Google version of FaceTime. Sure, sure, sure. Ah, uh, yeah. That makes sense. 
so they they just pick things up and uh if nobody likes it they just they just boop, it's gone the only thing that they've picked up that stuck was youtube yep and even that they've been making not good decisions with by trying to turn it into tiktok with shorts and i don't like shorts it. youtube shorts it's kind of like how every social media app wanted to be snapchat with stories mm-hmm. which are really annoying from a content manager standpoint which is like i don't want to bother with this crap and youtube at one point had stories didn't it um yep yeah, I, they probably still do. Honestly, I, you could, if nobody makes them, because why? I think um, for a while you've been able to make like, uh, if you have a certain number of subscribers, you can make like text and picture posts, like community posts. Yeah, community yeah. posts, which I think is actually not a terrible, not too bad. Yeah, thing to do. But yeah, stories and shorts, like, quit copying what other platforms do and just stick to what makes your maybe try work. doing your platform right because you're not mm-hmm. why'd you remove the dislike count unique selling <laughs> proposition but yeah so i don't know in recent years i've started to wonder like i don't think like social media writ large is going to disappear but i think that the legacy platforms such as facebook and twitter will fade Maybe Twitter less so, but I mean, Facebook is already like the only people still using it are, you know, millennials and boomers, um, at least in the United States. I think it's more popular outside the United States than in the United States at this point. Which is weird. Um, eventually, people will figure out that TikTok is just a data harvesting scheme by the Chinese government and get rid of it or something. Um, or a new thing will pop up. I think probably more likely. We're, we're still kind of in the teenage years of, um, social, of media. social media, where it's like I want to be cool. I want to before it eventually evens out into an established, known, understood like. When it business. turns out, all people wanted was really just a fancy way of texting each other, like so mass texting, text yeah, and mass texts with pictures and videos. And this was catalogs, so travel blogs, a chat room or two. <laughs> um, and I think, I mean, because you have Discord, you have you know, Facebook Messenger, you have all these different messaging apps. That Honestly, are, Facebook Messenger is the only good part of Facebook anymore. And even right. that is done better in other places. Right. So the only reason we still use Messenger is because everybody has Facebook and not everyone has or uses Discord. Mm-hmm. So if you're not, I've I heard. Um, uh, Honestly, Discord is just as bad for data privacy, but nobody knows it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> we're using it right now. <laughs> if we are using it right now, but, but I don't but, care. I'm a public person. I don't have a private life, so I have nothing to hide. Right. I just don't have a specific person to shout out when I'm talking to the Discord overlords like I can with the Zuck. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like um, I, YouTube has sort of stood the test of time because uh, compared to these other things because it, it really, all it has been about is just anybody being able to upload videos. And now it's just a resource for people even if you're not a quote unquote YouTuber, like, you know, say you need to make a training video for your employees. You can just upload it to your company's YouTube channel. Unlisted link. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It's just become very, 
easy and, and I think ubiquitous. That will make it very, very difficult to dethrone because it's just so ingrained i suppose so broadly like, useful yeah every, everybody yeah. has it and everybody uses it and it does what it does rather well yeah it's it's gone it's like well past its novelty point yeah um to where it's, it's now just like yeah it's like a utility almost of sorts and as much as there is a lot to dislike about youtube i don't see a mass exodus to daily motion or something like right that. yeah or vimeo <laughs> yeah vimeo has been around for a bit and like Really, nobody has migrated to it. Yep. Um, There's definitely things about Vimeo that I like, but like, you're just never going to reach people if you're a content creator. Mm-hmm. Unless you make stuff on YouTube and then specifically tell people to go to your Vimeo, which they won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't happen. And a lot of like a lot of people, um, like content creators, have sort of shifted to models where like, if they're worried about, yeah, you know, like they can just have their own like websites for content now so they don't yeah, have to if worry you're worried about, about the the people the um striking copyright down. the strikes the terms of service stuff you say hey i've got this on what my patreon also or whatever mm-hmm. and or like what hey, have you. throw a couple bucks if you actually want to care yep did you go back to the subscription model so i i i, I sort of foresee I think everyone at this point realizes how just garbage Twitter is as good as people you can find on there can be. Occasionally. Um, It'll be interesting to see what good old elongated muskrat does with it. Yeah. Well, he's he's trying to get out of the, the deal right now. Because, really? Yeah, because the whole thing being over spam accounts, he's like, they're not being honest about how many bots are on twitter and that affects the stock price so he's he called off the deal and twitter is now suing him to make sure he buys the company uh-huh it's a whole wild mess um well i would expect nothing nothing less of twitter i guess yeah uh i think they should just like nuke it all and erase it because we don't need our public discourse based on twitter anymore it's just a garbage pile but at a certain level if you cut off that head something else is gonna grow to take its place in the current climate Mm -hmm. uh just because that's the current attitude and use of social media so if people can't get their twitter fix they're gonna make something else right that's why tiktok is a thing currently it's because vine imploded and people wanted more content like that and people yeah. want to capitalize on the vine content i thought a lot about how social media has given the illusion of um importance to weigh or not importance but like the illusion of um notoriety uh i have x number of followers on twitter you should respect me yeah because it used to be like I'm not saying this is necessarily a good thing, but like, or sort of democratized like attention and clout. Um, and I'm not one to think that democracy is always good, especially in this case. Um, because if you, like if any old Joe can just make a video and it'll get like a million views and people, you can say just random crap um, and people will believe it. It's... I don't know. To me, that that seems like a bad thing. (laughs) I do feel like in some cases, it's 
more it's nicer to have that kind of more averaged out and yeah i don't like the curated fakeness of like the traditional celebrity yep yeah that's true so this kind of splits their power up and gives it back to the people mm-hmm. but it, when it turns out that like but not all the people are worth giving that power to anyway so yeah celebrity personalities just suck regardless yeah like that whole mode of like building culture just a around. thought yeah I, I enjoy a good entertainer. I'll follow a good mm. entertainer. Yeah. Um, and maybe you'll follow three good entertainers. Not <laughs> to stay out true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just ruminations of the James mind. Um, speaking of rumens, uh, I haven't seen any cows lately. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> I want to know what was ruminating in my mind just now. What's that? Uh Bryant was talking about keeping an umbrella in his car. Oh, yeah. And for whatever reason, I... Well, for one thing, the, the Rihanna song got stuck in my head for a bit. Dang and I'm it. like, be gone, thought. Yep. <laughs> um, but then I'm like, wait a minute. Umbrella has the root word for... Ha, has the Latin root word for shadow in there. And it's made for casting a shadow over you in the sun. Oh, umbrella. Umbridge. Ah. Yeah. Anyway. That's... And then that I also remembered... Sense. um. There's a point-and-click adventure indie game that Andrew recommended that I play once. And I read, played through my older brother, Andrew, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, your brother-in-law. Yep. And I played through like all but like one of the entries in that series. And there's a character in there who's like this private investigator guy named Trilby. And he's from uh, the UK. And he has an umbrella grappling hook. Nice. That is his Grawly. It's like a uh, grappling hook plus Brawly, which is apparently the... Uh, a slang word for umbrella in the UK. Okay. <laughs> so that, those were my musings of umbrellas. See, <laughs> British people just to get, get to say random crap and say it's a word and everyone will believe them. Rather stupid, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Rather stupid. Um, yeah, there's this one like browser game on Congregate called The Company of Myself. Okay. It has a very interesting kind of shadow mechanic where you can like leave shadows of yourself behind it's like a 2d platformer kind of thing Mm -hmm. and you leave shadows of yourself places that you can like swap between and do puzzle solving and traversing level it's it was actually really quite fun that's a cool idea i may have seen some other indie platformer like trailer on uh steam or something that i didn't end up like saving or into wish list or whatever but like yeah shadows they're they can offer for make for some cool ideas in that regard mm-hmm. i don't have pronouns <laughs> out the edge <laughs> well speaking of shadows and gaming oh. we're the palladian papists i'm james i'm nathan and i'm riley and today we're talking about shadow the hedgehog for the ps2 and gamecube <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, no, not quite. Not quite. We are oh. doing a gregarious games, however, oh, yeah. on Dark Souls Three. <clears throat> Lovely. I think it would actually be funny to or play. Or otherwise. 
in truth, this is going to be kind of like Dark Souls revisited. Sure. Yeah. Because to make sense of Dark Souls 3, you really have to understand Dark Souls 1. And we Go did back and listen an episode. to that episode. Go back and listen to that episode. But I am going to cover like a fair amount of the storyline of Dark Souls 1 in as short order as I can. Because 3 does repeat a lot of ideas, as I understand. It It essentially... You you really have to know what goes on in one to get anything out of what happens in three. Sure. So, yes, as a brief refresher, Dark Souls one before there is in the before times, as the kids would say, there is nothing but gray. Everything is the same. Nothing ever changes. There are gray dragons and arch trees, and everything is stable and unchanging. And then fire mystically, magically appears. And with fire comes disparity. Disparity being one of the central themes of the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. There's fire and and not, and cold and dark, and light, and all that stuff. I'm getting the contrasts in the wrong order, but you catch my drift. Mm-hmm. Light and dark, hot and cold, etc., etc. Which so Life happened to death. be the only the graphical capabilities of the PlayStation 3. And the Xbox 360. Yep. <laughs> this did not happen. And yes. <laughs> and so, the the entrance of disparity in the world brings the possibility of death because nothing else died before. And there are several powerful souls, which are acquired by these sort of humanoid beings, who become. Excuse me the um, so-called gods of the Dark Souls universe. And those being... prime. The foremost one that we care about is Gwyn, the Lord of Sunlight. The others are interesting, but we've talked about them more in the other episode. So Gwyn, the Lord of Sunlight, is kind of the captain of the Age of Fire, as it comes to be known. He's the one who is leading over the world as it enters this Age of Fire. And he builds a magnificent kingdom and everything's great. Until the fire starts to fade. The first flame that began all of this stuff. And so they've got to do something to keep it alive. And they try everything they can think of. From trying to recreate it with pyromancy. Which is a has disastrous results that you can learn about in the first episode. And eventually Gwyn, like, ends up having to sacrifice himself to the first flame in order to keep it going. Which doesn't kill him, but it ties his soul to the flame and leaves him like a hollowed husk of his former self. And so our hero of Dark Souls 1, the Chosen Undead, comes onto the scene and fights a bunch of baddies, and may or may not link the flame. Because Gwyn has probably, this is speculation, but I think it makes a great deal of sense, based on what we learn in the following games, that Gwyn has linked the flame to humanity. He has created an association that, like, the undead are creatures of dark. 
they their progenitor the furtive pygmy has the the dark soul the one soul that wasn't like of fire and so their nature is not has nothing to do with fire in fact it's it's as opposite it's dark or one of the opposite aspects of it and so by chaining the undead to the flame Gwyn has sort of taken their nature and perverted it tied it to something that it doesn't belong with and that creates this kind of angst in the undead like something they're drawn to the flame but it's not theirs it's not something that is natural to them and yet they need it and are inextricably tied to it so the chosen undead is able to link the flame or not that's the the two endings of dark souls one you can either choose to link the fire or to walk away from it now some have speculated that the linking of the fire is the so-called canonical ending of dark souls one i disagree with that i think both endings are in fact canonical given enough repetition because what dark souls 2 comes to point out is that the nature of the world is cyclical there is over time the flame as the fire is relinked and the curse fades undead are able to die and then the fire fades again so somebody will come and link the flame and if someone doesn't the dark lord has to defend the fire against someone who would come to link it and eventually some other undead who is trained more and is more powerful will come and unseat him and link the fire and that's sort of pointed out in dark souls 2 by the fact that it doesn't show you what happens after you enter the kiln because it's irrelevant what you choose doesn't matter the order of the world will go on as it has this cycle of the flame fading or the flame being linked there is another possible ending Dark Souls 2 and it's not super relevant for the purposes of this thing but it's essentially the undead is given the power to reject the cycle for himself and himself only by collecting the three crowns of these old monarchs he is able to acquire a, a crown that will allow him to never hollow and undead will go hollow if they don't have a purpose which basically means they lose their minds and are sort of just wandering around mindlessly and aimlessly or they rage quit and turn the game <laughs> off and never turn it back on well, that's that's like the gameplay encoding of hollowing mm -hmm. when you turn off the console your character hollows because it has lost its purpose very neat mm -hmm. but anyway so you could you can choose to reject this cycle and escape it and become a lord of darkness that will never hollow but you don't really get to interact with the world from there and f here we come to dark souls 3 so we have established at this point that the world is going through these cycles of 
linking the fire and letting it fade, linking it, letting it fade, etc. ad nauseum. But something seems to be changing now. The flame is getting weaker. Mm-hmm. And over time, like the the ruling class, the, the descendants of Gwyn, uh, one of them who was sort of destined to inherit the flame, or rather the linking of it, chooses not to. He shirks his duty to continue the Age of Fire, and is kind of learned from his teacher, who was presumably a human, that the whole nature of the business that was, you know, often hid from the so-called gods of the Dark Souls world. Mm-hmm. You know, the, Gwyn went to great lengths to cover up what he had done to make it look like the Chosen Undead was just doing what was very plainly and obviously right. But um, Lothric chooses not to fulfill his duty and instead, instead to simply rest in the throne room. And so... The keepers of the fire, the people who have a vested interest in the Age of Fire continuing, have are growing desperate because they don't really have... The undead kind of just aren't cutting it anymore. And so in their moment of desperation, they resurrect, essentially, the, the souls of the previous Lords of Cinder who have linked the fire before them. So they're they're kind of taking some charred wood and attempting to throw it back in the fire. And this is done in timey-wimey fashion with a bunch of worlds colliding all into each other. It's kind of the the setting of Dark Souls 3. Mm. And so you are one such... Um, you're not exactly like the Lords of Cinder, but you are an ashen one. One who is, presumably, this is, again, speculation, but one who has attempted to link the fire but failed. It was not a sufficient offering. But since the fire is desperate, you're getting another chance. Mm-hmm. And so the Ashen One goes and meets the firekeeper in Firelink Shrine, which is a location from the first game, but it looks very different. It looks remarkably like the kiln of the first flame from the first game. So that will be important to note as we go through. And the firekeepers all like, Ah yes, you Ashen One, you're gonna go and kill all those old lords of Cinder and take their take their embers and basically offer them to the first flame again. So your soul's not gonna cut it, and neither are any of theirs individually. But the rest of the Lords of Cinder, they don't want anything to do with that, of course, because they've been given another chance at life, and they're going to run with that for what it's worth. Except one of them, the little Lord Ludlith, <laughs> he willingly um, offers his embers to you. He's the one sitting in the shrine when you start the game. Oh, he's the one who tells you all that? Not exactly, but he's, he's one of those... Mysterious Dark Souls NPC. One of those guys who says something vague and then laughs for five minutes. And then laughs, yes. Exactly <laughs> like that. 
That's like your friend telling you do. what to do during the game. <laughs> no, we we couldn't tell you what to do. We can right, only I mean, do like, a like cryptically, premise. like cryptically, like oh, um, <clears throat> go that way. <laughs> to to be fair, we're slightly more helpful than that. Yeah, slightly. If you knew, if you if you just asked everybody, you'd eventually figure it out. But yeah. nonetheless, so you you have your quest. And now you set off on your your journey to claim all of the different Lord Cinders. There's lots of callbacks to previous games and new and interesting characters, and I'm not going to get into them all because mm-hmm. it would take a while, and you can experience them by playing the game yourself. I ought to. Yes. And so once you have done all of that... You, depending on what ending you're following, there's a few, there's actually three endings to Dark Souls 3. Hmm. The previous games only had two, so. How numerically? That's interesting. Um, yes, and uh, a, a numeric three, yes. yes. <laughs> how numerically appropriate? Not an ontological three. Ah. Or a listener two, if you will. Well, yeah, the the listener too is more of an ontological too. <laughs> Tunis is part of its being. <laughs> anyway, once you have collected all of the embers, you can go to the fire, the, the kiln, and re um, offer what scant kindling to the flame that you can offer and you fight this if you're choosing the link the flame ending you fight the soul of cinder well i guess in all of them you fight the soul of cinder but, but who like is kind of gwyn again an amalgam huh is it gwyn again it's kind of gwyn again so it's not told explicitly anywhere but the soul of cinder has basically an unlimited moveset. Not quite unlimited, but like employs about eight, eight or so different movesets that I've encountered so far. So there it basically could pull from any build of previous characters from previous games? Precisely. Uh-huh. Meant to imply that the soul of Cinder has been accumulating the powers of each chosen undead who has linked it throughout the ages. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it a really challenging and interesting boss fight. Because when it side rolls, when you side roll, we have a problem. It rolls and uses lance attacks and thief attacks and magic attacks and giant spear attacks. It's like, hey, those are my moves. Stop it. I'm the one who's supposed to be able to cheese. I I like the put-together doppelganger fight. Yes, it's a very... And it also is pretty narratively compelling pulling in the kind of cyclical nature of mm-hmm. the universe so there the other ending that is noteworthy i think one of them has less plot value to the overall story but the usurpation of the flame is you have if you take a slightly different route and find some certain items and show them to the firekeeper, she's all like, hey, 
What if I pulled the flame out of the kiln? What if I just grabbed it up and took it out? Took it out of there. Just put it in the lantern and walked away? Put it... Yeah, pretty much. Do, do you... Are you interested in that? Would you perhaps be... Um, I, I could do that for you if you wanted. And you're like, yeah, I want to do that. I would like to end the cycles and bring the world into a definitive age of dark because I'm, I'm a human. I'm an explorer. I'm a pioneer. I like to eat. <laughs> I'm angry. I like to fight. Anyway. <laughs> Alex Jones. Soundboard. The, cho- the chosen undead sign. <laughs> Somebody that's, that that's what I need to do. I need to model my cho- my ashen one after Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> and then mod the game with his sound grunts. The only sad thing about him yes. getting taken off the internet is the memes that he spawned dying out. Anyway. <laughs> yes. So... Once you have collected those certain items and done those certain dialogue options, you once you defeat the Soul of Cinder, the Firekeeper comes in and pulls the flame out and says, I'm seeing in the distant future some embers. So, implying that the cycle isn't truly done. Mm-hmm. But for now... It's going to be an age of dark comparable to the age of fire as it first began. So we're going to take a break, make Sekiro, make Elden Ring. Maybe we'll come back later. <laughs> Maybe we'll come back later. I think it. I think they're done with Dark yeah. Souls. Cause it, it kind of... Narratively the, tied most up people, everything. Most people say that the usurpation of the dark is the canonical ending. And again, my position is that every ending in Dark Souls is canonical because of the cyclical nature of things. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make a difference which ending actually happens because the other ones will happen regardless. So, yeah, that's that's my two cents about that whole thing. Mm-hmm. But um, there's one other ending that's a bit more esoteric and gets into some of the side character lore and stuff, and I don't want to get into it. Sure. If you want to experience that, go to YouTube and look it up or play the game. Talk to Udia. That's your your clue. Talk to Udia. Talk to Udia. Okay. Yes. And so that's that's essentially, in, in brief... The story of Dark Souls Three, because the world, once again, like the flame is gone. Yeah, because every boss has their backstory and their tragic failure and their revenge plot or whatever else they have going on, and their relationship to one another or the alleged connections to Bloodborne. Is Perry the platypus the chosen undead? Perhaps. <laughs> Perry the chosen undead. <laughs> <laughs> Just in a cyclic cyclic battle with Doofenshmirtz. <laughs> I link the flame in it on. <laughs> um, I'm trying to remember what, like where, like the discussion went on the previous episode on Dark Souls. We kind of just talked about how 
richly told the story is. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And like it's so masterfully presented because none of this is told explicitly to you. Mm-hmm. I, if you want to know what's going on, you have to search it out. And I like, I kind of appreciate it when a game respects your time and intelligence by saying, if you care about the story, you're going to seek it out. Mm-hmm. If you don't and you're here for the hack and slashy stuff, go ahead. I'll point you in the direction of the next boss. That I kind of, I kind of respect that direction. It makes, gives it a character. What do you say? What would you say that Dark Souls Three adds as a game to the previous two? Like, what does it bring to the series that's unique to it? Does it, in narratively, artistically, or like gameplay wise? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I guess you could. You could. Uh, yeah, break I it can down. address all of those things. So, in terms of gameplay and mechanics, it kind of used Bloodborne as a experiment. Sure. And basically adopted Bloodborne, but made it Dark Souls stylized. So, the... the so, you have a gun? The meta... No, no gun. <laughs> the meta of the previous two games had kind of been camp behind your shield and strategically read your opponent's attacks and... You know, you can act in a very calculated way. Whereas in 3, that is totally flipped over. Like, it's all about punishing your instincts for that kind of play. So it will take your, like, you're reading the attack pattern. And it's like, oh, this is usually the part where this sort of monster stops attacking. And it'll, like, throw in some of the random thing in there. So, like, this, your anticipation of the attack pattern stopping is punished by them throwing something else in to keep you on your toes and to force you to, like, learn a new set of habits and be more um, active in combat instead of being passive. It, it's a good, that sounds like a good way to keep uh, active fans of Dark Souls on the back foot as much as new players are. Right. Because Dark Souls really shines when you're on the back foot trying to figure out what to do next and how to how to get forward and that's where the triumph comes in from victory. And in fact, a lot of people I know that have only played Dark Souls 3 and then went back and tried to play one just couldn't handle it cuz it was too easy. Oh sure. Like they they were punished over and over again for like the any sort of calculated or methodical way of playing. And so when they have the opportunity to do that, it just like feels clunky and you know unresponsive to them, hmm. which is tragic because Dark Souls One is a brilliant game. I loved One. You should it's, play it, James. And it seems like that's sort of like the intended progression of the games is like you, you would want to play them in order to get the full experience. Yes, absolutely. Two is kind of honestly missable. I happen to love it. Most people in the Souls community really hate Dark Souls 2. I don't. I think it. It was. It's much worse than one because one was just such a shining gem. Like. And there's also sort of a novelty of it, you know. Yeah. Well, that can't really be repeated per se. Well, Demon Souls happened before it, and Dark Souls is kind of a refinement of Demon Souls. Yeah. But Demon's Souls was no? not nearly no. as popular as Dark Souls. 
I mean, maybe a little more popular now with like the remake that they came out with not too long ago. But even that Perhaps. got eclipsed by Elden Ring the second that came out. Yep. So I guess there's that. Mm-hmm. Um, Which fair. Now, it seems that the story of Dark Souls is highly symbolic. But I haven't quite... It is not symbolic because that would mean it has to mean something definitive. Okay. Um, and I the idea is then? that it's kind of an analog for any kind of suffering. Okay. So we can, yeah, we can get into a little bit of the philosophy of yeah. the game. Sure. As at least I see it. Because I hadn't studied philosophy when we made the first episode. Mm-hmm. So... You're getting something new in this episode, folks. You hey, thought it would just be just, just a really Dead Souls or another Dank Sus episode? No, it's going to be Dank Sus 2, the third part. <laughs> There's a title for you. <laughs> so the the game, all three of them really, lean very heavily on existentialist thought. Hmm. And this is the main what thesis I, of, of that movement is... You exist before you are something. So before you're a human, you're just a, a thing with two arms and two legs and a nose and all that jazz. You're like, your existence precedes your essence. That's kind of their adage. Existence precedes essence. Mm-hmm. And so you decide to become something and then you go become it. And also lots of angst is part of that because, well, yeah, you know, you're sort of left with very little hope about any particular thing. You, especially a lot of strains of existentialist thought are very much atheistic. And so yeah. when you die, you're, you're just dead. Sort of that There's idea of like, it. you know, needing to make your mark on the world in your own unique way before you disappear into nothingness as being a <clears throat> and driving none factor. of those choices are really relevant in the grand scheme of things because mm-hmm. the the powers that be running the show are using you as a tool f- to accomplish whatever they want ah, which and is very much a thing in dark souls with like this the cinders and the chosen undead and all which that which ultimately would make you very replaceable by literally any other human willing to try and make their mark on the world and be manipulated in such a way. Precisely. Fulfill the grand quest of re- of relinking the flame, but turns out just by Fulfilling the grand it. quest of... And by the time Dark Souls 3 comes around, you know all that. Mm-hmm. Like, in the first one, you can kind of merrily prance your way through not really understanding what you're doing. That's that's most people's experience of it. You're just kind of going along with what the toothy serpent tells you to do, and you just go and link the fire. But it seems like in the third one, not only if you've played the previous games are you familiar with what Dark Souls' whole shtick, but canonically, you're also a guy who has tried to link the fire before and gone through this whole shtick. Or gone through some whole shtick. Some whole shtick, yeah. Who knows what, or when, or where, or why. But I think it's interesting but, how the player character can be seen as kind of reflecting 
the attitude and understanding of the uh, the players themselves. I kind of dig and that. The, that's a, a common theme throughout all three games. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. There's such a tight integration of the story and the gameplay mechanics. It is truly, a in that way, it's a great role-playing game because it not only brings the player to the role, but the role to the player in a way. And so the existentialist kind of looks at life and sees that it's ultimately meaningless in itself and that it's functionally uncontrollable. There's nothing I can do because I haven't been born with the wealth or the power or the intellectual resources or whatever to make something to have what I want and to like really be happy. And so I have to just make up some meaning for myself. That's really all there is to it. I have to choose some course in life and that will be where I derive my meaning. Isn't that so, pretty closely related to like, I forget which school, like there's one um, form of nihilism that sort of adopts a similar tack to like creating your own meaning, at least on that level. Like nothing matters, yes. but stuff matters to you. So try to find meaning. Because that's the only way to live. If you don't do that, you'll just go insane. Mm-hmm. And that that notion is encoded in hollowing in mm-hmm. the characters in the world. If it's canonical that uh, an undead will go hollow if it has no purpose. Once of the there's lots of NPCs that once you finish their quest lines will just hollow because they don't have anything if, else going on. The thing they cared about making happen has ceased to be. It's been resolved and so, in some way. Yeah, hollowing is that um, a great way of representing that. But anyone who has kind of the audacity to choose something and follow through with it will ultimately be able to accomplish what they want and it will consume them more or less mm. symbolized by the the linking of the flame consuming the one who links mm. so it's not a very um redeemable picture of the world but that's what they're doing yep um and it's obvious that you know this strain of thought has been very influential and that it speaks to people in a certain way and because of that it merits engaging with yeah why is it that people feel so instrumentalized why is it that um when you examine that sort of mindset it it kind of follows that you have to just create some kind of meaning for yourself like you can at least sympathize with that understand like once you understand where they come from yeah in a mindset and philosophy that doesn't have god in the equation at all Mm -hmm. it's there are some philosophies that like the ancient greek stuff didn't have a, a monotheistic god or even a personal god but they still had this robustness of life about them. And that's because they had an essentially good view of the world. Like, they believed that happiness was possible and that it didn't lie in getting what you want. But rather finding, you know, in, in a certain way, the virtues and vices. Getting, right. It, it, 
you do, it does lie in getting what you want, but it's about understanding what what do you really actually want, mm-hmm. not what are just the the whims that you have. That that's sort of achieving was a eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. Uh, you, okay. Yeah. Blessedness. Mm-hmm. So that also that's comes the with vision the... of happiness that the ancients are after. Whereas the I definition can't... of happiness for a modern is the sating of any chance desire. The fulfillment of, you know, your sort of personal destiny, whatever that means. Um, sort of... It's so individualist and so divorced from any, com- like, concrete goal of what's good. And that's the thing when... Uh... When the earth itself, when life itself, when nature itself isn't good in and of itself, all you have is to turn inward. And it sounds like the world of Dark Souls is not very good. No. Even before when things were balanced, it was just kind of gray and static. The bourgeoisie lords of of Lordran kind of bully around the proletarian undead. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, the proletarian undead will uh, try and rise up and age of dark the whole thing, but uh, somebody always relinks. Indeed. And there's other stuff with, you know, there's learning about the nature of darkness in the first game DLC, actually in first and third game DLC. Oh, okay. Actually, first and second and third game DLC. <laughs> okay, so they all have DLC yes. that brings you to the Dark Soul place. The DLC, yeah, the DLC is the place where you kind of interact with humanity and the Dark Soul. And what all of that means. The dark little chapter. And it's not setting out to say dark good, right. fire bad. Because Manus, the Lord of the Abyss in the first game, has kind of absorbed so much dark that he's lost himself. And so he's like just become this mad, raving, kind of dangerous beast. I suppose he takes could... on these like primate figure. You know, he looks more like a, a gorilla than a man at a certain point. I suppose that sort of um, illustrates the contrast between searching for meaning or choosing to despair. Like being swallowed up by your more base instincts. Yeah. Um, because you can sort of, in a more high, like, try to find yourself in a more high minded sense, or you can be like, well, I'm just going to give in to my base desires and my search for, you know, happiness and fulfillment. So like do, you, do you let your search for meaning consume you, or do you go hollow and give in to base desires? Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that or should we get into our analysis? Uh, we can get into the analysis. Yeah, there's probably more to explore. So, truth. What truth can we find in Dark Souls? Or... Draw by, out of analysis yeah. of it anyway. Because obviously, yeah. like, existentialism... <clears throat> Catholics have a thing or two to say about <laughs> existentialism. Yes. one or One or two or three, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like I said earlier, we it merits engaging with the uh, the ideas of existentialism and more pertinently, why people believe it in the first place. 
yeah, there there are a select few people out there who actually have like a a metaphysical reason for it, but Heidegger and those who followed him. But mm. you know, the people who follow him have a much less compelling argument, I guess. Heidegger is the one that you really have to engage with on that point. Mm-hmm. I suppose that his followers might be a little more derivative and lack. Well, his... it's it's not so much that they're derivative. It's just that they're taking what he says for granted and trying mm-hmm. to go from there. Uh, whereas he actually did the work to get to where he got to. Right. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, this angst thing, that sounds like me. That, that speaks to me. So <laughs> literally I'm just me. Going to ass- <laughs> I'm just going to assume that's true. And Guys, he's literally me. so yeah we have to realize that a lot of people feel terribly unempowered to do anything Mm -hmm. they feel like they're victims of a a war of opposing forces in the world just the situation they were born into outside of their own volunteering or to bring it back to the beginning of the episode look at people on twitter and this will all make sense (laughs) And that there's, they feel like there's nothing they can do about it. And so just forging whatever path makes them not go insane is the right one. And that's a place we can preach the charisma into, you know? Mm. You can, we can, it depends on the person. Like, if they're a more intellectually inclined person, I would say you start by preaching, a bit, you by arguing to, towards like an ethics of desire like aristotle and give hand them a copy of after virtue mm-hmm. and that will be a good place to start <laughs> but sort of that idea that your desires reveal something about you interiorly and that um, your desires are ultimately oriented to the highest and best things that there are to desire mm-hmm. it's not simply you, you it's not what you set there's something beyond even what you can set for yourself that idea of becoming mm-hmm. who you are rather Not than who you want to be making it up as you, you go are. along or aring what you become mm-hmm. becoming what you are aring who you become mm-hmm. this is me except this is this is who I, i've decided i'm a wild animal <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's. I mean, we're not talking about Fantastic Mr. Fox, but he literally brings up existentialism in the movie um, as like sort of a justification for what he does. And um, in absence of God or like... Um, An ultimate good to strive toward. Yeah, that you're really yes. left with sort of like, well, what's the self-image I build for, and how do I pursue it? Um, and I yes. suppose going back to my ramblings about social media at the beginning, it's unsurprising that so many people are, are trying to forge these personas online that they, so they can find Live some sort their of fo- truth, quote unquote. Yeah. As if truth is an individualistic thing mm-hmm. to be. Oh, but know, it decided. is when you jump through the metaphysical hoops of multimundialism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) i read a a fascinating paper for well it's a book but i read parts of it for a paper i was doing for my um ethics and natural law class and the the lady who wrote it was like arguing that you know 
she's a moral relativist, and my paper yeah. was on the fact that moral relativism is a, a theory that's a mask for conscience, but you can read that paper if you want to know. I'll find somewhere to link it <laughs> so yeah. you guys can read it. Link the file. But anyway, like her assertion was, you know, most people who are championing moral relativism are trying to do it on the grounds of like, you know, pure epistemology. And she's like, I don't think that's good enough. We really have to have metaphysics behind this thing. So my metaphysical assertion is that every person lives in a metaphysically different world from each other. Oh boy. Hence ah. multimundialism. I'm like, okay, that kind of does satisfy the condition that you need, but also you've assumed your conclusion before you started, so you started that's just... not very good philosophy. Yeah. Mm. It's like, so why is this true? It's like, okay, that's, yes. yeah. <laughs> because it has to be. Mm -hmm. That's the only sensible way to live with each other for yeah. modern. And a lot of truths, quote unquote, accepted today are accepted simply because they have to be. In order to justify what people want to believe. Mm -hmm. like or even, that they must in order to stop killing each other if you're the kind of the early enlightenment mm -hmm. who's trying to grapple with all of these religious wars going on. Mm -hmm. And once there's no longer a universal moral authority in the Catholic Church, now there's Lutherans and Calvinists and all this stuff going around. Like, how can you possibly come up with something that unifies us? And the only thing that can unify us is that we all do what we want. And that was Locke. And now that took us to where we are today by a series of progressive steps. And what do you know? Everyone feels isolated. All the progressive steps were in lockstep with each other. We, you, have to, you have to screw the conformists in the exact same way that we do. <laughs> um, in a manner of speaking. Um, all of that by way of saying existentialism bad it is unsatisfactory in understandable providing... but should, still bad it should leave you like a feeling a bit hollow pun intended yeah. yes it's understandable yet still bad and so even... what what we do is not say you're you know you guys are also terrible people you say i understand why you feel this way Here's something that is a true object of desire. Here's something mm -hmm. that's really good. The sort of the Catholic counter to existentialism. something like, positive to look for. Sort of the Catholic um, counter, I suppose, is the idea of like vocation. Um, you know, you're the, and not simply like. Well, it's not something you decide. It is something greater than you could envision for yourself that is set for you by someone well, who. Well, you do decide to do it, right. but right. you're also called to it. Mm -hmm. And by pursuing that, you will become, you will achieve like the highest good in your life. Um, I would say even prior to that is just an ethics of virtue. Yeah. Right. What do you want? I want to be an NFL player. Why? Okay. What kind of qualities do you need to get that? Can you eat an entire cake every day if you want to do that? No. Uh, okay, that's the virtue of temperance. Mm -hmm. Do you need, like, to be able to make smart decisions about how you spend your money and your time? There's prudence. Like, you talk about the virtues in terms of being able to achieve what your genuine goals are. 
Mm-hmm. That's where I think is the best place to start. And, and your goals can be the virtues. Yeah. No. Well, oh. no, no. Not um, really. Yeah. Ah. Virtues like, are the qualities that enable your goals. Right, right. Yeah. But and getting so you better can at use, the virtues. They can be sort part of intermediate of goals, but not they're not really ends in themselves. And I think a lot of people today can understand that idea of intermediate goals to get to the a grander goal. Like there's a lot of, I guess, secular voices out there that kind of say the same thing with using different words, more or less. Get on the grind. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to be said about the rise and grind sort of culture, but it's at least... didn't work. It's a, yeah, but it's at least like a bridge of understanding you can build when speaking to people mm-hmm. about this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. That, that, Any other pieces of uh, truth we can chew on from Dark Souls 3? There's not a lot of other like hard stuff to latch on to. There's yeah. just a lot of how you interpret it. Mm-hmm. What the did like especially the the kind of dynamic of light and darkness. Mm-hmm. Fire and dark, like how those things interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And what th- what they mean about the human person. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of debate around that, but it's worth having, so um goodness. What goodness is there to be found in Dark Souls 3? Not much, it sounds like. On a broad scale. On a broad scale. Not a lot. There are lots of good NPCs and kind of, you know, smaller character arcs along the way. Especially like Solaire from the first game. Oh, yes. <laughs> Solaire. He's just a jolly old boy trying to find the sun and eventually he doesn't succeed and you well but in certain you cases you have he does. the ability to save him if you are very 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 attentive mm-hmm. so like there's all these moments of companionship with people you meet on your journey which is also their journey in the timey-wimey weirdness that is dark souls is that sort of how they in-game justify you being able to like leave notes for other people yes Okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's how basically every character interaction is justified. Is and all the PvP everyone's worlds are multiplayer. kind of capable of connecting, and time works very strangely here. I see. But yeah, so it's just like walking with different people for a time, and if you are really conscious and pursuing like understanding them and coming to know them better they will be there to help you in times that are usually like really difficult bosses Mm -hmm. so it's like if you invest yourself into people you know they will often be there for you in your time of need which is the power of friendship (laughs) um let's see uh beauty what is beautiful about Dark Souls? Boy, everything. <laughs> Dude, if the first game is anything to go by and that came out on the PS3 and got a remaster or whatever and then the later games happened, I can't imagine how just nice that game is too, just to look at. The thing about Dark Souls 3, unfortunately, is that in part of as part of its theming, it's like 
the world is collapsing and going to crap. Mm-hmm. So it's if you thought the first game was dark, just wait till you play three, because it gets even so... more dark. And Imagine rain it's just on a parade, bleak, and that parade is shattering. When into I was a, a young boy, my father took me and told me to become a lord of cinder. <laughs> He said, will you defeat them? The savior of the broken. (laughs) The beaten and the damned. (laughs) Okay. Anyway. There's always a lot of great attention to detail in the the FromSoft games. The, The worlds are very specifically, particularly put together with a lot of just, you can, the environment itself lends itself to telling the story. And it's like it would take too long to go through everything that it does, but it's just like the more you look, the better it gets. The more you learn, the more you go back and play it again, you'll notice new things based on what you've learned the last time. That just like, oh, that's what that piece of scenery is. Like that I need little, to, I need to read that actually Dark Souls has 1 now. meaningful story material, and I wouldn't have noticed it had I not learned this thing about this character. Like, it just has this insane depth to it mm-hmm. that's only revealed successively. Or it's like, oh, that's why this item was in this room on this body. That kind of a just really... Or you can tell what body that was, even if it's a disfigured corpse, based on the sort of item it had. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like when archaeologists dig up a grave and they're able to figure out something about a Saxon warlord from all the artifacts and stuff they find around him. For example, but in game form. Yeah, in game form. Um, it's, just, it's really magnificent the way they do it. And really you can only really do it justice by experiencing it. That's to go play it. That's one of the unique things about games as a medium is you can, is it has that interactability and that player input. Like you get as much out of it as you put into it, in, particularly in these Dark Souls games. So the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of the world it's and the, the story. invitation, if you will, to participate in the narrative rather than simply observe Spectate it. Spectate it. Or you, you could totally just go uh, choppy-choppy all the bosses and have your grand old time oblivious, and you'll have just as much fun as you want to have with it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of great. Uh, Unity, what brings it all together? Dark. And so, light. Yeah, Dark Souls. <laughs> there it is. There it is. It's it's in the title. The... Especially three, where you actually get to like find the Dark Soul and stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh, you you find the Dark Soul. Uh, more or less. More or less. Interesting. Interesting. Also, and the the oh. supposed connection to bloodborne is in my opinion much more than supposed it's almost to the point of explicit interesting what was the thing you were gonna say it is Uh, the um when one of the dlcs the ashes of ariandel there's a painter who paints new worlds like in the first game with priscilla the half-breed right and the the painting that she's working on when you go there looks very much like Yarnum. 
from Bloodborne. If you spend much time looking at the painting, you'll be like, yeah, that that's Yarnum. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. And so it's very possible that every FromSoft game is in just another painted world. That's so a, a theory just that's like, going around. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere there's like a Dark Souls uh, Steve's house from Blue's Clues where you just jump into paintings. And, uh, <laughs> do, do, do. <laughs> Mary Poppins. Uh, a Dark, Dark Souls, Souls like... Um, Peach's castle, or yeah, whatever. that's <laughs> Mario sixty-four. Is Mario a dark soul? <laughs> <laughs> Mario is the chosen undead. This is not does does not mama the media. <laughs> One thing that that occurred to me is, um, so the the fire is fading, right? And as I understand, the pyromancer class has been heavily nerfed throughout the series, and in the third game particularly, right? It was quite busted in the first game. Right. In the second game, it was heavily nerfed. In the third, it was pretty playable. Oh, okay. Because I'm like, did that... Is that, like, subtly corresponding to the strength of the first flame or what? But Maybe retrospectively. Well, pyromancy is not connected to the no, first flame. No, it was flame. connected to recru- trying to recreate it with the Witches of Isleth and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The chaos pyromancies the are. Chaos. It's actually a more <laughs> kind of... You mean the chaos pyromancy? <laughs> Where is that pyromancy? Chaos is kind pyromancy. of ironically developed in a swamp. So <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, uh, that I like this. Was... I th- I think it's great when we can break down the philosophy of something like we have, like the whole existentialist. Yeah, that was very. Uh, Good, and it's not it's often a very that different my, kind of episode. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's we've not already often covered that my stream of consciousness at the beginning of the episode is relevant <laughs> later on, <laughs> sort of incidentally. So I like I liked how that came together. But it's also nice how we took a different angle, having already covered another entry in the series prior. Yeah. So it adds a kind of a fresh spin where the themes are very similar. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of fresh spins, we ought to spin this one up. Yep, we're going to call it a day. Well, thanks for listening to the Palladium Papers. You can listen to us on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Please leave a rating to let us know what you think of the show, and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Palpapus. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, or suggestions for future episodes, email us at palladiumpapus at gmail.com, and we will talk to you again next week. Bye. Bye. See ya.